Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for the Bible. everybody though it will be long past by the time you uh, hear this exciting episode of the bible geek but what the heck uh and uh, i'd like to just report on a couple of things carol and i are working on the patreon uh, account uh, we've got some real interesting uh um, rewards for uh, patrons, uh, one of them being uh, being on the short list of folks that uh, hear the human Bible, which I'm going to revive. Uh, I, I've always resisted having paid subscription of the Bible Geek, and I don't ever want to do that, but I figure, what the heck, let's try it with uh, a new human Bible, yeah, plus all kinds of other things. Uh, you know, I've mentioned uh, Heretics Anonymous occasionally, a discussion group Carol and I have hosted in our various homes over the decades, where we get a diverse group of people we happen to know who are interested in discussing theology and uh, uh, ethical and biblical issues and so on. Well, uh, I want to try to revive that in a couple of ways. Uh, one would be a Google Hangout every month, and, and provided uh, she can show me how to, to work those darn things. And, uh, you know, I'm just short of a Luddite. A Luddite is against modern technology. I, I'm not against it. I'm just inept. But luckily, Carol is very skilled at such things. So, uh, And also... Uh, we've been invited on occasion to go visit uh, Bible geek fans and shoot the breeze uh, about all these uh, fun subjects uh, in person. And uh, we're going to, I think, uh, try to set up a thing like that where if you'll get us out there, uh, we'll uh, uh, host one of these groups in your uh, home or your favorite uh, heretical conventicle or your favorite pizza joint now we're talking uh and uh and we got all sorts of fun things uh planned okay another news item uh, i'm getting well not that close but uh, almost able to see the light at the end of the tunnel for uh, the project i've been working on for nearly two years holy fable i have but um, four New Testament writings, not short ones, to deal with. I've I've done Matthew. I'm going to work on Mark. 
Luke, John, and the book of Acts. I got all the epistles out of the way over the last uh, many months, and uh, I have to admit I'm really pleased with it, and I think you're going get, to get a kick out of it too. Uh, so that's in the works. And then I, I have, uh, oh boy, uh, other ones lined up. I think I'm going to do them in this order. I'm teaming up with Mark Thomas, who used to teach at uh, Brigham Young University until uh, they caught on to him. Uh, just kidding. Uh, he uh, organized the Book of Mormon Roundtable. I was a member of that and went out there for a couple of years in August to Utah. He and I, as, as I say, are working on a, a book, a kind of a critical introduction to the New Testament, specifically aimed at open-minded Mormon readers. There are quite a number of such uh, people. And, um, and, and also uh, the, the special spin on this thing would be that in addition to introducing what scholarship says about each New Testament book, there would be a section on... Um, material from each book that Joseph Smith worked into the Book of Mormon in a rewritten form. That I've looked into that a bit, and it is a fascinating study. And then, similarly, uh, how he redacted the New Testament books in his own version of the Bible, the inspired version. Uh, this is uh, really going to be interesting. So I'm thinking of calling this book The Paper Plates, Joseph Smith and the New Testament. Then I'm uh, planning, I've uh, outlined in some detail, a book called uh, Christ Mythicism and New Testament Christology. And uh, that's, that's going to be a lot of fun and address a major issue that I've never really heard expounded on. How come on the theory that Jesus Christ was originally a celestial deity who never appeared on earth uh, and then was historicized for various reasons and made into an ostensibly historical character. How do you fit that, that sort of downward trajectory with the apparent tendency from gospel to gospel to have Jesus a man adopted by God as his honorific or honorary son in Mark uh, to uh, almost a mythicist view, almost a docetist view in the Gospel of John. And I have an interesting theory. I have intimated it on the show before. Then after that, I've got outlined one called Judaizing Jesus, trying to indicate that uh, today's tendency among mainstream scholars to understand Jesus as well within the first century Jewish paradigm is really a kind of a piece of ecumenical and apologetical axe grinding. And I'll be analyzing all kinds of uh, books and writers from different standpoints on that. And then last but not least, I want to do um, my uh, projected book, Bart Ehrman interpreted a little play there on his book title Jesus Interrupted uh, what this would be is a, um, a sympathetic setting forth of his uh, major 
the pillars of his his work on uh, Jesus and various you know the textual criticism the canon and so on a sympathetic exposition defending him against the several critics of, of his and then uh, indicating where he and I differ and why but it, it wouldn't be any kind of an attack on him I, I have no interest in doing that but he is a significant scholar with interesting stuff to say and uh, he's cer- certainly against mythicism and I'm for it so I think it would be interesting to to deal with that and to show how much common ground we have and where we differ and why uh, ironical and I think real interesting topic so th- I've gotten quite a bunch of uh, projects to, to do here but I just thought I'd let you know what's in the in the pipeline okay uh, let's take a look at a different pipeline that of Bible geek questions Here's one from uh, Richard M. Katzwer, who is a Ph.D. candidate in economics. Holy mackerel. Um, I, I deal with mere ancient texts and so on. Uh, anybody that can master economics, uh, my hat's off to him. In fact, he's even stumping me on the Bible here. He says, I find the differences between Old Testament canons to be fascinating. Growing up Jewish, it was quite a shock to me to learn a few years ago that the Catholic... Uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have Old Testament books that we didn't. I was kind of jealous that First and Second Maccabees made the cut for them and not us. Anyway, I digress. No can well, not really. Uh, no canon seems as interesting as the Ethiopian broader canon. Well, he's certainly right there. My question is about the. Uh, Maccabean, if that's how you say it, uh, or Ethiopic Maccabees books. Unlike Jubilees and Enoch, which are included in the Ethiopian canon, but constitute genuinely pre-Christian Jewish works originally authored in Semitic languages, Maccabean um, uh, seems to be a mystery. I can't seem to find any real information online about the origin, authorship, uh, geography or dating of these books, I uh, was wondering if you could shed any light on these books. <laughs> and of course, the answer is I cannot. I never heard of this. And therefore, you know, I, of course, it's loads of fun to display my own lamentable ignorance. But the reason I read questions like this that I cannot answer is I suspect somebody in our listenership can. So if you can tell us, I'd be interested to know too. So. Uh, uh, Reuven, any of you guys that might know about this, please let us know. Fascinating. I, I just love the idea of the uh, the Ethiopic uh, canon and all, all the neat stuff that, that's in there. Um, but this part I never heard of. All right. Uh, thanks, Richard. And uh, let's see. Alex says, in Galatians 3.1, Paul tells his audience that Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I have heard that this portrayal refers to some kind of sacred theater pageant in which the prototype Jesus story was first told. Maybe the archons and all the rest of it. One, what do you think the chances are of the primitive passion and resurrection narrative beginning life as a piece of theater? 
Well, uh, that's not implausible. I don't know what real evidence there is, but it's not some sort of, you know, weird speculation because myths are are very, very often, especially the salvation myth, are, are often the scripts for rituals. Sometimes they are um, created and and postulated as uh, the uh, the reason for a ritual uh, that uh, is so old nobody even knows what it originally referred to. I mean, there's all kinds of Old Testament instances of that, like the one where Jacob wrestles with God and his um, thigh is is uh, dislocated and and so on, and it explains why. Um, Israelites didn't eat the particular muscle on the hollow of the thigh of any animal that was otherwise kosher and edible. Uh, it's fanciful. They just didn't remember. I mean, I, I kind of wish they'd have done the same thing with the uh, commandment not to see the baby goat in goat's milk. Right? Von Rod says uh, that um, these ancient Canaanite texts indicate that that was part of a magic ritual among the Canaanites. But, you know, the, most of my life I uh, went without knowing it, and uh, heck, I'd have settled even for a myth about it. But, you know, uh, so you have these rituals, uh, and uh, a myth explains what we're doing here when we do it. And, um, okay, so... Uh, it could well be. I mean, it is a salvation myth. Uh, Alfred Loisy pointed out that the words of institution at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, etc., that these are, uh, this is a cult legend or cultic legend, in other words, a ritual le legend, and that um, these are not eyewitness reports of Jesus saying these things, but rather some Christian priest explaining the meaning of what they're doing in uh, Holy Communion. And I think he's right. So, yeah, uh, and uh, it, it could well be, especially with the salvation myth, right? There's a lot of myths that are just pre-scientific attempts to explain weird things, but there are plenty of what Gunkel called ceremonial legends, and this, this could have been one. Um... Let's see. I believe... Uh, oh, yeah, two, have any scholars specifically addressed it as a possibility? I believe it was... Uh, oh, boy, I can't believe it. I forget this. William Benjamin Smith, I think. Could have been Benjamin... No, I think it's William Benjamin Smith. Uh, he was a famous mythicist, and I believe he argued that uh, the, the gospel passion narrative, at least, did begin as a ritual myth. Um, uh, by the way, I think of the Attis cult, where um, they would... Uh, uh, they would uh, perform a kind of passion play of the savior Attis dying, and then they would tie a, a clay dummy or effigy of him to a stripped pine trunk and uh, and put it in almost like something in, into an oven. They would put it into a, a tomb and then 
on the third day, they would rejoice and say, Rejoice, you initiates, for your God is saved, and we too shall be saved from ills. Uh, well, you know, that's very much like the, the passion play that's still done in the world about uh, Jesus, right? So, you know, this is not that uh, improbable. It would be difficult to establish it, but it's certainly a viable theory. Um, Bishop Spong, I know, thinks that uh, at least one of the nativity stories began as we still see it today in churches as a pageant and uh, could be. Um, uh, Let's see. Three, was theater slash sacred pageantry a significant factor in other contemporary cultic worships of the time? Well, you jump the gun. The Attis... um, um, passion play uh, is an example of that but if you go way back it's pretty obvious I think all scholars would agree that drama was originally sacred not secular and it was always liturgical in character uh, so uh, yeah that that's uh, again it's it's a sort of a solid theory because of that um, for are there any other signs of theater pageantry in the epistles or the New Testament as a whole? Well, the the big one there would be the book of Revelation. I believe it was John Wesley Buchanan or is a, um, oh, a, uh, what's the name of the country? A Zimbabwean um, professor of mine once said, uh, Buchanan. I love I love African accents. Anyway, uh, Buchanan did this book, uh, The Drama of Revelation, where he sets out the whole thing as a script for some kind of drama. Again, that is not that odd because uh, in all the Middle Eastern monarchies way back there, Babylonians, Canaanites, uh, so on and so on, they had every New Year's Day a, a ceremony uh, acting out the primordial struggle of the young warrior and storm god, Marduk or Baal or whoever, defeating the chaos dragon, Leviathan and Tiamat and so forth, and then being enthroned as king. Uh, and and the the idea was this is what had happened with the the new king of the gods and his victory led to the creation of the world from the carcass of the slain dragon and so the the king would uh would uh gain and then regain the mandate of heaven every new year's because the new year in the ancient thinking was kind of a recreation of the world, a new world beginning. And the king was the earthly vicar or viceroy of the king of the gods. And so uh, he would come out in his armor with his spear or something, and uh, and a bunch of guys would be inside a dragon costume, like you still see in Chinese New Year parades. And they would circle each other and then have a mock combat, a dance, uh, and then the guy in the dragon suit would all fall down and the uh, the king would climb up the steps to the temple uh, to the acclaim of everybody and uh, there was more to it than this but then he would go into the temple and it was believed he would ascend into heaven to see the tablets of destiny so he would know what's going to happen in the year ahead really really fascinating sacred kingship well that goes way way back uh, and uh, that is sacred 
drama and um, that uh, rejuvenated the, the world and the authority of the king. So really that goes uh, very far back. And again, the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are a, a variant of that. Uh, the, uh, the sacred king, the anointed one who... Uh, battles the last enemy death and is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the the old king of the gods uh, in heaven so yeah there's uh, so i don't i don't know if uh, i don't remember if buchanan gets into that but there's if he doesn't there's even more backing for what he's saying about revelation which brings up a, 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 an idea i have always loved you know um Toho Studios, they do Godzilla, Mothra, and all that stuff. They did uh, in, uh, I think it was 1994, a a movie based on Shinto mythology called Yamato Takiru, and uh, it really has an epic feel to it, and it has to do with this uh, champion who goes on this quest and has to fight various monsters, including the Yamato Hydra, which is an eight-headed leviathan. It is great. Well, this made me think, you know, these guys, or nowadays, you know, with the effects, almost anybody could make a a, a, um, straight cinematic adaptation of the Book of Revelation not helicopter gunships and dictators and stuff like that, a demythologized version, but just depict what is on the page with dragons and centaur locusts and stuff like that. Well, boy, would that be great. And not just fun. I truly think that would enable students of the book of Revelation to see the whole thing in a new light. So I'm hoping somebody will do that. Okay, five, is it just coincidence that a theater was built in Sephoris around the putative time of Jesus, and yet the city itself is never mentioned in the gospel story? Could this stem from a theatrical superstition, such as referring to Macbeth as the Scottish play? I don't know the reference there. I don't know what that denotes and so on. I I don't really know uh, why Sephoris doesn't come in for mention. Of course, it does if you read Bill O'Reilly's um, Killing Jesus, where he tells you that Jesus and his dad, Joseph, would put on their construction hard hats and take their lunch pails with them and walk from Nazareth to Sephoris to be uh, in on the construction project. I guess the the Holy Ghost whispered this into his ear. Um, uh, But in the actual New Testament, there there is no mention of it. And it's a good question, but I don't find any, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard any other theories, but could just be chance. Okay, here's one from our friend Lachlan uh, Cristante, Vampire Predator. I'm not sure how many episodes on the subject I listened to until it finally hit me. 
The idea of the crazy guy with a sandwich board saying, Repent! The end is near! is such a cultural icon that my mind reeled at the idea of a sane, divine Jesus who really meant it and had good evidence for it. Finally, it hit me that one of my favorite movies already features a divine character who really believes the world is about to end. The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and the incomparable Keanu Reeves. Yeah, some people don't seem to like good old Keanu. I, I don't know why. Uh, I've always enjoyed his flicks. The ones I've seen, I can't say anything about Bill and Ted. I, but at any rate, uh, one other movie I can recommend. Oh, you're right about that. That's certainly the case. Uh, one other movie I can recommend wholeheartedly to all Bible Geek listeners is the original Transformers animated movie. As I researched how the spirit became holy, I realized that the apotheosis of Hot Rod into Rodimus Prime resembles a gospel story with the Autobot Matrix of leadership serving as a stand-in for the Holy Spirit. Having no Christian upbringing as a child beyond what I saw on TV, I assumed it was more like Excalibur, uh, but when, uh, one of my favorite movies, but when I realized that in early Christianity there were devotees who rejected the Logos concept and preferred an idea that gave the Holy Spirit I'm sorry, preferred an idea that the Holy Spirit made Joseph's son into this God-man and also gave him an exalted name. It also gives a chilling portrayal of the archons in the form of the Quintessions or Quintessens. Um, never seen that. I have seen the first uh, uh, so-called live-action movie with uh, Shia LaBeouf in it. Um, he could be a robot. But yeah, interesting. I am always interested in uh, biblical parallels to um, in, in, uh, in fantasy and science fiction movies because these things, like comic books, are the modern mythology. I always defend comics and the like, uh, not because I think I have to to be respectable, but because it is clear to me these are the modern myths. Anyway... Uh, this from, uh, let's see, Poliava, one, uh, one of our favorites around here. He says, um, all right there, me old China. Remember, China, plate, mate. Uh, well, Gov, I recently noticed that the audiobook version of old Danny Brown's The Da Vinci Code had been posted on YouTube, so I thought I might as well have a listen. I ain't proud of myself. Actually, I only listen to it in the interests of um, uh, social research. Yeah, that's it. Blimey, what a load of old cod swallop. I couldn't believe me blooming ears. I knew there was a lot of dodgy stuff in there, but I'd, I had uh, thought there would be at least a bit of genuine material about the Bible. No such luck. And what about that Lee Teabag? or T-Bing, as they call him, I use the same joke, uh, character. What a blooming liberty. I've never come across such a blatant stereotype of an Englishman in the way he speaks. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, by the way, old Danny Boy committed at least three hours regarding the UK, what only confirms that the geezer didn't do no research. One... Colin Lee Teabag, Sir Teabag, 
You can call the geese a silly teabag, a silly, but sir teabag, or even sir teabing, just sounds ridiculous. Have you ever heard of someone referring to Sir Connery or Sir McCartney? Never. Uh, two, Kent ain't no suburb of London. It's a county what's actually bigger in area than the whole of Greater London. Three, there ain't no such rank in the British police as captain. It probably should have been chief inspector. Anyway, Gov, now for me question. Are there any decent modern novels or other works of fiction what include the good old eye of criticism? Are there any with the Christ myth theory? Have you written anything like this yourself or considered doing it? Um, let's see. I get into this in my book, uh, Secret Scrolls, the revelations from the lost gospel novels. That might be the place to look, and some, because um, there are over 40 of them, and they do try or pretend to get into the higher criticism. Sometimes they're on the mark. Sometimes they, they're just um, spinning it out, extrapolating in a fictional direction, which is what's so fascinating about them. Uh, but sometimes the writers just don't seem to know what the heck they're talking about. But if you, if you can get a hold of that, I think you would really enjoy it. It does weigh out each one of these, and to what degree are they getting it right or, or just BSing it. Uh, but I don't know if anybody does uh, really a good job of that. I've not done it, uh, but I am thinking of doing, if I can get up the guts to try to write a novel, uh, a book called Shocking Revelations, which uh, involves uh, gospel discoveries and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, I'm probably going to need a collaborator for that. We'll see. Uh, see. Actually, Gov, I thought I'd have a go. Almost finished. It is the blurb what I've written for the back cover. Uh, let's see. Uh, lovable Cockney rogue Romford Rob Langley used to think, I guess I should do it this way, uh, at the Holy Grail was whatever uh, gloss happened to contain his next pint of lager. But that, uh, but that all changes when he stumbles across a podcast hosted by radical biblical scholar M.T. Bryce Roper. Still reeling from the startling revelations emanating from the show, Romford Rob teams up with a French bird called Fifi Nouveau to investigate more closely a secret what threatens the very foundations of Christianity. During their quest, Romford Rob and Fifi have to take on many enemies, including Christian apologists Craig William Neal and Lee Strobelites, cut-and-paste spirituality merchants such as Debunked Chopper, and last but uh, by no means least, bleeding time wasters in the form of peddlers of dodgy theories about Mary Magdalene, sacred bloodlines, and all that. Gradually, old Robbie boy realizes that he's in fact taken on a single but deadly foe in the form of a conspiracy what dates back to the dawn of history, a sinister spiritual code with many uh, devotees called the priority. Of, I'm sorry, yeah, the priority of lion. 
Will the, true, true, will the two truth seekers fall victim to this all-encompassing evil before they can find a key to the mystery? Or is the Grand Master of the Order of the Brown Bull about to find himself on the receiving end of a good kicking in the cloisters of Canterbury Cathedral? I've decided to call the book The Knights Templar Freemason Illuminati Templar Solomon Mystery Code. Actually, the title don't really reflect the book's contents much, but I thought it might help to shift a few copies. Cheers, pull the other one. Oh, sounds great. I'll uh, be in uh, line, uh, first in line to get one. That, uh, that, that sounds terrific. And, of course, I deal with the Da Vinci Code and Secret Scrolls, too. Uh, couldn't believe what I was reading. So well written in some ways, and what a piece of junk in others. Uh, thanks a lot. Pull the other one. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, well, Geek of Geeks, a comment from Alexander, the Ph.D. student in Ohio. I came across a recent song-slash-poem from a French-Israeli music group that I thought you would appreciate if you haven't seen it already. Uh, certainly not. It is called Prayer in Sea. I've copied the, uh, the lyrics below, and I hope you will read them on the show. They're quite short. Note the use of the first letter of the Tetragrammaton showing up again and again. I think that Bible geek listeners would find them interesting as an example of religious cynicism coming out of youth culture and modern Judaism. Prayer in Sea. Yah, Y-A-H, Yah, you never said a word, you didn't send me no letter, don't think I could forgive you, see our world is slowly dying, I'm not wasting no more time, don't think I could believe you. Yah, our, hand, uh, our hands will get more wrinkled and our hair it will be gray, don't think I can forgive you. And see the children are starving and their houses were destroyed, don't think they will forgive you. Uh, I, when seas will cover lands, and when men will be no more, don't you, th don't think you can forgive you. Yah, when they'll be just, when they'll just be silence, and when life will be over, don't think you will forgive you. Interesting. Reminds me a bit of one of my favorite and most shocking movies, The Rapture, uh, with Mimi Rogers and David Duchovny and others. Uh, where uh, this woman was led by her faith uh, to uh, uh, to uh, shoot her daughter in the head so they can get to heaven quicker to meet their slain uh, her her father and the girl's her husband and the girl's father. Uh, and then uh, she renounces the whole thing in horror at what she's done, but then it turns out that uh, her former faith that the rapture was shortly on its way it was justified, and the trumpet sounds and all that, and uh, her ghostly daughter appears at the edge of a chasm and says that, uh, that God will forgive her mom if she will uh, ask. And uh, then uh, the woman says, yeah, who's going to forgive God? Okay, uh, dear Bible Geek, Minnesota accent requested. This is uh, from JC. My daughter Victoria happens to be in Minnesota at the moment. Let's hope she's not being recruited for Al Shabab. Uh, if you, uh, see, can I even remember how to do this? 
A few years back, I was reading Bloom's book, The Western Canon, and somewhere in passing, he mentioned his appreciation for the Mormon mythology, don't you know? So I went out and got his book, American Religion, to see why. I grew up Mormon. I couldn't see what someone could see in it. It was all just ramblings of a megalomaniac to me. His premise, as I recall, is that Smith was able to somehow intuit the underlying paganism of the Old Testament and to blend that with Jewish Gnosticism and Kabbalah into a coherent theology. As I see it, the Book of Mormon definitely doesn't fit this. It is a poor rewrite of Bible stories and an attempt to synchronize the Old and New Testaments. The Doctrines and Covenants is a slight improvement, but uh, mostly fixing F-ups and the things he left out of the Book of Mormon, so he must have been talking about Joseph Smith's history, that is Bloom, and the Pearl of Great Price. These are where Joe really tries to do myth-making, and I can see the parallels to polytheism in the Kabbalah, but I think you're right. I believe that is the way to, to, to divide it up. And in fact, the uh, Book of Mormon has very little to do with uh, distinctive Mormon theology. But I think it was really Brigham Young who took this to a whole new level by essentially ripping off Adam Cadmon in his Adam-God doctrine. Taught in Mormonism as only an allegory to help understand the temple, uh, that is, the Masonic rituals better. What is your thought? What are your thoughts on Mormon mythology? Am I biased by coming at it from the inside, or is it truly as impressive as Bloom claims? Also, has anyone made a Marcionite New Testament like you did with the pre-Nicene New Testament. Now, are there any uh, good books that really dissect and decode revelations? I, I'm gathering you mean the book of Revelation there. Well, I think um, Bloom is basically right, though, as you say, the Book of Mormon itself is not really where you find this. But um, there is... Uh, well, the Mormons love the work of Margaret Barker because uh, I don't think she had an eye on the, the Book of Mormon, and certainly she's not a Mormon. I believe she's a Methodist. She uh, really sniffed out, and, and other scholars had too, but I, I just love her presentation, uh, sniffed out the polytheistic origins of the temple and uh, various biblical myths and, and does show how, yeah, uh, what we are reading of as the canonical Old Testament really is a heavily censored, rewritten, reconceived version of an older type of Judaism, and of which vestiges remain apparent here and there in the text, things that the Deuteronomic school didn't notice and didn't try to get rid of. Uh, and uh, and she, as I say, she had no uh, no reference to uh, Mormonism, uh, but uh, they read this and saw how much her sketch of uh, ancient Israelite religion did fit with what Joseph Smith said about um, the real biblical religion uh, that he was trying to revive. Uh, and uh, because there is a heck of a lot of overlap. Now, this is no surprise, really, because it just showed that these two people with no connection had the same sharp-eyed scrutiny of the, the texts and noticed a whole bunch of the same things. And uh, I think, yeah, that that is right. And the Mormons, oddly enough, 
I don't want to say by accident or by chance. I think uh, Joseph Smith really did spot a lot of stuff in there that Margaret Barker and others would later uh, come up with, and there are a huge number of parallels, and it really transforms your view of the um, of the whole uh, Mormon tradition. And uh, one other book that I think you would really enjoy is a book uh, by uh, John L. Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, called The Refiner's Fire, The Making of Mormon Cosmology, 1644 to 1844, Cambridge University Press. It is endlessly fascinating. Oh, let me just read uh, John Butler's blurb. The Refiner's Fire explores the complex and always intriguing world of early Mormon theological and ritual evolution with remarkable learning, fairness, and daring. An exciting, sophisticated account sure to generate both controversy and a renewed appreciation of early Mormon spiritual creativity. And... uh, Oh, yeah, here's another one from uh, R. Lawrence Moore from Campbell University. No, Cornell University. John Brooke takes a controversial romp over the field of previous Mormon scholarship. When he has done, he has managed to raise the intellectual pedigree of Joseph Smith by establishing his close kinship with European hermeticists and the subversive sectarians of the Radical Reformation. It is a fascinating argument that traces the influence of ideas through complicated social networks of neighbors and kin, and um, uh, so on. It is really, really a fascinating book, The Refiner's Fire, The Making of Mormon Cosmology, 1644 to 1844, John L. Brooke. And uh, as for Margaret Barker, Uh, There's a couple of great books she did, The Older Testament and The Great Angel, just eye-opening. So, yeah, uh, uh, Bloom is right, in my opinion. Uh, Some of the things are parallel, some are derived from uh, other uh, sectarian groups, but it isn't just de novo, and um, just I find Mormonism just extremely fascinating. About the Book of Revelation... Uh, one book that I, I think is invaluable is Bruce J. Uh, Malina, M-A-L-I-N-A, uh, called uh, On the Genre and Message of Revelation, uh, where he shows that ancient astronomy and astrology permeate the book of Revelation to an astonishing degree. Uh, so that is is a great one. And... Uh, of course, this is uh, kind of like uh, dropping an anvil on your head, but R.H. Charles's two volumes on Revelation in uh, the International Critical Commentary is, is great stuff, too. There, It is really deep and really detailed. But you'll probably enjoy my uh, chapter on Revelation and Holy Fable coming out uh, next year or so. Okay, uh, uh, Lachlan here. 
I've been listening to very early and, and more recent episodes with the occasional episode from the middle of the prodigious amount of Bible Geek episodes. So far, I haven't heard this addressed. In Jesus Christ Superstar, the anointing uh, at Bethany from the view of Judas makes Jesus look like a bit of a jerk. The perspective is definitely biblical, and by John the uh, and. Uh, got an extra word here. Uh, and John the evangelist has to excuse Jesus by saying Judas was a thief who really didn't care about the poor, but instead stole from the collection, setting an example for the Robin, uh, the Robert Tiltons of the world to follow for centuries. Although it seems an ad hominem fallacy and not an actual excuse for pouring a year's wages upon one's head, the gospel accounts from the perspective of an occultist uh, make Jesus look far better. Better. I completely understand he needed the nard in order to be raised from the dead. Um, that goes way back to Osiris. Isis raised him from the dead by pouring magic ointment on him. Uh, from an Ebionite perspective, though, the poor, you know, why wasn't this saved for the poor, uh, is the name of their sect. That's right, Ebionim, the poor in Hebrew. Unlike a theosophical translation from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where capitalizing wisdom is scribal axe grinding, we're talking about a very real chance that in the context of any reference to the poor, we could have references to the, impo uh, to the impoverished or to the sect known as the poor. Am I off the mark on this reading, or have I grasped a legitimate understanding? Well, uh, let me point out two th things that have uh, helped me grasp the, or try to grasp this passage. It sort of does make Jesus look like a self-aggrandizing, narcissistic jerk. Why would that enter the tradition? Well, I am really tempted by the idea that, as with several other passages... This reflects the early uh, practice of the wandering prophets and apostles, Christian ones, uh, the itinerant radicals, as um, the great Gerd Tyson calls them, the people for whom the mission charge uh, in Matthew 10 and so on uh, was written, uh, the brethren who went out without any provisions, trusting to God uh, that uh, those who accepted their message would feed and house them temporarily till they went on to the next spot. Third John is about this. Uh, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats parable has to do with the treatment of these brethren of Jesus. The Didache mentions them, this late 1st, early 2nd century Syrian church manual. And this is where it gets interesting for our purpose. It, these guys were, this, this whole lifestyle was starting to be abused. Uh, there were gospel bums, as they called similar people in the 1970s Jesus movement, who would go from one to another Christian commune, claiming to, be, to get saved there and then stay as long as they could, uh, mooching off the, the commune until they got kicked out. Uh, and uh, th this was happening more and more, and uh, in the Didache, it says, somebody comes, uh, one of these prophets, one of these apostles, 
let him um, conduct the Eucharist any way he wants to. He's inspired. Uh, and, um, and because if you don't and you try to stop him, you could be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You don't want that to happen. Uh, but then it says, if, however, he stays more than a few days, he's a false prophet. And if he says, ostensibly in a trance, give me money or make me a meal, okay, forget it. That's like uh, Ramtha, Judy Zebra Knight, uh, in her channeling trance, having the ancient warlord Ramtha telling her hearers to buy some of the racehorses that uh, Judy Knight uh, raised on the side. Come on. Uh, and uh, so they were aware of this, and they said, kick him out. Uh, he's just a leech. He's a fake in that case. Well, I think that is uh, somehow reflected in uh, the, uh, or might be, in the anointing at Bethany scene, where as often Jesus stands for these guys. In fact, uh, there's another interesting little sidelight. When uh, Jesus says in the present gospel, whoever in this sinful and adulterous generation is ashamed of me and my words, you know, laughs him off, uh, uh, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes with his angels, etc., in judgment. Uh, who are we talking about here? If this really is supposed to be Jesus, who's he talking about when he refers to the Son of Man in the third person? This led uh, Bultmann and uh, various other critical scholars to say, ah, this is a little window into what Jesus actually taught. The uh, imminent coming of the Danielic one like a Son of Man. He didn't mean himself. He meant, uh, you know, this messianic uh, judge who would shortly be coming. So you laugh off what I say. The Son of Man is going to wipe that smirk off your kisser when he shows up to kick butt. Not that the speaker is the Son of Man, but that the Son of Man will vindicate and avenge him, very much as John the Baptist says. Um, that uh, You uh, generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because somebody mightier than I is on the way, and watch out. Well, he's not the, the one, uh, he, but this, this divine avenger is soon to come, and now's the time to get things right. Same sort of thing. It, it, it's entirely reasonable, but Gerd Tyson implies, no, you see, this was one of the retort, retorts or rejoinders from these itinerant radicals who were Jesus' self-appointed representatives. You know, whoever hears you, hears me, all that stuff. That what they're saying is, you may laugh me off or slam the door in my face, but when the Son of Man comes, you're in big trouble, not me. And I, I, to me, that makes an awful lot of sense and sheds light on this whole uh, issue. And I think the anointing at Bethany depicts the um, the hubris of these prophets uh, that uh, yeah you can give to the you know the, your poor neighbors anytime but look uh, you you've got me in person here the prophet of the ascended Christ I, I think you should show a little more regard uh, arrogant yes not that uh, unusual and uh, it. Um, uh, in fact, you could compare it with uh, Luke 10, 
uh, the thing with uh, Mary and Martha in Bethany also, right, uh, where uh, Martha's running around trying to get the the, uh, the dinner ready, and Mary is uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in his teaching, and Martha gets uh, mad and says, hey, Lord, why don't you tell her to get off her but and help me in the kitchen and jesus says hey hey martha you're you're upset about too many things mary here has chosen the better part and i for one am not going to take it away from her same sort of thing it it isn't business i mean <laughs> i always get a laugh out of this you know uh where Mar- what like martha has no grasp of the situation supposedly she does she's she and her sister are offering hospitality and food to this wandering prophet jesus right well uh, but here she's saying uh look uh, i don't care if you've got jesus christ teaching you come on in and uh, help me stick the meat thermometer in the camel uh it's it's hilarious and disproportionate on purpose and i wonder if that's not the same kind of thing and as tyson says who would keep these traditions alive or who would have fabricated them? Take your pick. Somebody who was trying to invoke the example of Jesus, uh, to whom no one would deny that a special accord is due, and they're trying to use it for themselves. Yeah, right. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Here's another one, and I can deal with this quicker. A new possible way of understanding this occurred to me when I was uh, in the uh, audience, well, I guess I was was waiting my turn with the grad students at the commencement at Drew University. And uh, first the uh, seminary students, the future ministers, went up to get their diplomas. And a bunch of them were wearing these uh, ministerial robes called ALBS, A-L-B-S, and uh, they're like light beige and uh, all of us grad students were wearing the black academic gown, right, with the mortarboards and so on. I didn't know why, and uh, neither did anybody else. And so when they began to go up and get the diplomas, the MC said that what the seminary students had done was to take the money they would have used to rent academic gowns and gave it to the poor, gave it to some relief fund. And I felt like standing up and yelling, uh, don't do your acts of righteousness before men, uh, and to be, you know, to show how pious you are. And I thought, is this what's going on? Uh, Judas complains, well, in Mark, it's just somebody, in Matthew, it's some disciple, in John, it's Judas. He, he's uh, saying, hey, this is a waste. Why, isn't it your policy to sell these luxuries and give the proceeds to the poor? And Jesus is saying, what are you really about here? Why are you saying this? She's done a beautiful thing for me. Get off her back. Uh, and and I, I thought, you know, why are they doing this now? Uh, why? Or after all, Jesus didn't tell her to do it. Uh, she's just showing great respect and love for him. Why is it that somebody is invoking this socialistic redistribution thing right now? And, of course, right afterward, uh, the disciple goes off and sells Jesus out to the authorities. Uh, who knows? Uh, it's, uh, there are a couple of ways of looking at that. So I'm glad you brought that up. I've always been fascinated by it. Um, let's see. This next one is Don from Colorado. And he saith... 
I was brought up as a Southern Baptist, but as the years went by, it became more and more apparent that the religion was not working for me. I could not live the life that I had professed to believe. After much soul-searching and study of other religions and philosophies, I came to believe that religion was just a superstition created by man to explain the unexplainable. I realized I had to make my peace with reality, and that it, that involved making my peace with uncertainty. I was able to do this, and am currently satisfied with my take on reality. However, I have a few close friends that are still neck-deep in the Southern Baptist way of life. I have no problem with their perspective, and they pretty much have no problem with mine, except from time to time they ask me what I currently believe and why. Uh, this is a bit of a problem for me, because I don't want to deny the possibility of God, but I do deny that if he exists, he is adequately represented by any religion as practiced on this planet. Uh, this is where you come into the picture. I don't want to refer them to your show directly because in the first five minutes of listening to you, they will figure out that you were an atheist and discount everything you have to say because of that status. Uh, what I want to say to them is that I have serious doubts about the authenticity of the Bible as the inspired word of God, and I want you to help me make my point. The way I want you to do that is by recommending to me the book that you've written that most directly addresses this point. As you mention them on your show, I realize that you've written many wonderful books on this and related topics, and that is the crux of the problem. I really don't have the time or the motivation to read them all, so could you let me know which one I should buy and read so that when they ask me that question, I will have some answers for them. Hmm. Uh, well, Don, my, uh, I I'm thinking the... Uh, the best one might be the case against the case for Christ, where I do a point-by-point -point refutation of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Now, that doesn't center on contradictions, but it does show that these arguments in favor of uh, the resurrection and traditional Christianity just do not hold water. Um... But you might find helpful uh, the reason-driven life, my rejoinder to what's-his-name's the purpose-driven life. And in there, I do deal with uh, contradictions. And uh, see, or, you know, you know, maybe the best one would be uh, my brand new one, Blaming Jesus for Jehovah. I have a pretty concise list of about 20 or 30 irresolvable Bible contradictions. Uh, so that might be a good one. Uh, it's on Amazon, so blaming Jesus for Jehovah. I think you'd get plenty of ammo in that one. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking, and good luck with them. Uh, ooh. You know, one thing I would point out is that uh, if you are not, is to say, Look, I'm not trying to change your mind, but you've asked me what I think, so I will give an accounting of that. Uh, I used to find this convincing. I don't anymore, and here's why. You make of it what you will. 
you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you're right, maybe you can show me I'm wrong, but uh, so far I don't see it. And uh, this is what has, this is the kind of thing that has led me uh, to differ. Uh, and that way, you they can they can approach it without feeling threatened. You will not have cast down the gauntlet. Uh, oh, yeah, let's see, answer this, because that's going to put them on the defensive. But if you say, look, you know, make of it what you will, you ask me, this is the kind of thing I have in mind. That makes it easier for them to uh, to consider it. I, I think that's important. Uh, let's see. Oh, boy, this is really something. Uh, valuable stuff from Christian Lintner a great scholar of Sanskrit and the New Testament. I think I'm going to finish with this because it's kind of long and detailed, but as with everything Lintner writes, it's well worth the time. Um, in, um, uh, and this is uh, in memoriam for uh, D.M. Murdoch, Acharya S., who was a good friend of both uh, Christian and myself, in her comment on Luke 23.3, our late friend D.M. Murdoch makes the good point that the reason for the women finding the tomb of Jesus to be empty might have been that they went to the wrong tomb. See her Who Was Jesus? Fingerprints of the Christ, uh, page 246. Uh, if that were so, this would be a case of hidden satire. To decide if this is so, we need to consult one of the Buddhist sources, which is uh, SBV1, page 141. Now, what is that? Uh, Oh, boy. I uh, ought to know. I can't think. Here we read that... um, Here we read that one of the courtesans... um, Avar Udika woke up late at night and noticing that Yasas, the prince, or Kumaras, was not to be seen in his huge bed. Uh, it was empty. Having seen this, she ran to inform his father, who then, full of fear, dispatched his men to search for Yasas, Y-A-S-A-S in you know, Roman letters, Perhaps he had been abducted by robbers. This event took place in Benares. Eventually, Yasas was found sound and safe. Luke introduces uh, the indication of time, te demia ton sabaton, which certainly does not mean on Sunday morning, but renders the Sanskrit tena kalu samayena, Uh, on that occasion. You know, this may sound absurd to you, but keep in mind that Sanskrit and Greek go back to the same root, right? It's the Indo-European language thing, right? So there are a lot of cognate uh, words. It's not like they just happen to sound somewhat alike. Okay, uh, the early morning in Luke reflects the late night Saratram Eva in the, the original The parallel in John 20, verse 1, comes even closer to the Sanskrit when it says, Proiskotias, early of the dark, while it was still dark, John improves Luke. Behind the grave, Tomnema and Tomnemeon, we recognize the huge bed, Mahasayane, 
locative, the Sanskrit verb for see, notice, is rendered correctly by the Greek synonym hoiron. In the original, the woman is in the singular, in the copy, in the plural. Luke 23.3 says that they did not find the body of Jesus. Some manuscripts add, of the Lord, kuriu. Uh, this is the correct reading, reflecting yasas kumaras of the original. So the kuriu for uh, kumaras, uh, kumarasaya uh, should be retained. There were other cases where kurios translates kumaras, but kumaras can also become marcos uh, as known. The courtesan was supta Pratibuddha. She had risen from sleep just as Jesus Christ later has arisen from the dead. It is not explicitly stated that Yasas, Jesus, had arisen, but the bed now being empty, he must have. So there was no direct witness to his resurrection from the bed becoming the grave. The Sanskrit noun can, in fact, refer to any place where one rests, even a body. In Mark 16:7, an angel orders them to go and tell the disciples and Peter. Why Peter? This is because the first person to whom the woman went, uh, in the Buddhist version, was the, the, uh, let me read this right, the Arha Pater, the house father or Pater Familias. Uh, so, Patir is behind Petros. Here, Petro. Uh, let me see here. Yeah. In his search for Yasas, the father approaches the Buddha. Page 142. Now something strange occurs. By way of magic, the Buddha makes Yasas invisible so that his father cannot see him. Once the father has been enlightened by listening to the teaching of the Buddha, another miracle enables him to see his son again, page 143. The sermon includes teachings about life after death. All educated Buddhists are, I assume, familiar with this fable about Yasas in Benares. When we thus compare the version given by the evangelists with the original, it is obvious that we are dealing with mimesis and with satire. All odd points in the Greek are accounted for in the light of the original Sanskrit. This satire about the resurrection of Yasas, Jesus, from the huge bed, grave, as found in Luke 24, 1 through 12, has its parallels in Matthew 28, 1 through 10, in Mark 16, 1 through 8, and in John 20, 1 through 10. The point about the women slash woman bringing spices, the point about the stone being removed, the point about the angel and the earthquake, about the white clothes, about the guards, about taking hold of the Lord's feet, can all be traced back to one and the same source, which is also the source of so many other episodes in the mimesis and satire of the four Gospels. Uh, the MPS... Uh, is that the... Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, uh, part of the MSV, 
boy, I uh, don't can't think of it. It is also to be noted that the Buddhist sutram or scripture has been transmitted in several parallel recensions. This fact, a puzzle in its own right, is reflected in the fact that New Testament uh, gospels likewise have several evangelists tell more or less the same story. In other words, the synoptic problem has been inherited from the Buddhist sutram. Luke 24:11 has this comment. But the apostles thought that what the women said was nonsense and did not believe them. With these words, he admits that this is just a fable based on Buddhist sources. The New Testament tale is a transformation of the Buddhist tale. What else does this fable prove, quote-unquote, that Yasas, Jesus, was among the first to be converted to Buddhism in Benares? This Yasas is explicitly called a Kulaputras, son of a noble family. Here one must have wisdom. The number of Kulaputras is 1,532, but 1532 is also the number of Jesus Emmanuel. 888 plus 644 equals 1532. The evangelists, all Buddhists, could now say to themselves that they had achieved what they intended. The resurrection or rebirth of Yasas, the Kula Putras from Benares, as Jesus called uh, uh, Emmanuel. It was a typical case of what the Buddhists referred to as Abhinirmanam, metamorphosis or transformation. Any future introduction to the New Testament must contain a chapter on transformation of identity. A note on Avarudika, the definition given by the dictionaries is a woman secluded in the river. I'm sorry, I can't read this thing. Uh, My glasses are driving me nuts. If you have bifocals, you may know what I mean. Uh, A woman secluded in the inner apartments. She is here... Uh, the first to see the empty bed, and she is said to be Anyatama, meaning a certain, her proper name, you know, certain so-and-so, right? Her proper name not being given. The first member of the compound Anyatama is Anya. The feminine form is Anya, meaning another and that accounts for the other Mary mentioned by Matthew 28, 1. Uh, Sanskrit Anya is Greek Ale. She too came to see Theoresai, the grave. The Tafos contains a new pun on stupas, a synonym. Uh, empty stupas uh, are, fam- are familiar to all Buddhists. You know, the, the stupa is a big uh, conical shaped monument that may or may not contain a Buddhist relic. You know, I know this sounds very far-fetched, but I believe uh, that uh, that uh, that is likely because we never heard this kind of thing, right? I do not know Sanskrit. I uh, cannot evaluate this adequately. But um, Professor Lintner has come up with Parallels, sometimes not even dealing with the transliterations of words, though th- those are pretty, pretty impressive. 
what he does with Alexander and Rufus in the Gospel of Mark is really mind-blowing. But just looking at stories on the surface level, uh, there are startling parallels. And, and I don't mean just the same thing, the same general themes. You know, the Buddha and Jesus are both said to teach similar ethical things. That doesn't mean anything, right? That's you expect parallels like that from all the religions. But I mean narratives that have inessential details, but they both have the details. It's just amazing. Uh, he his work really um, demands. Uh, the um, closer scrutiny by uh, mainstream scholars who unfortunately just dismiss it, perhaps because, like me, they're incompetent to judge it, and it's easier just to dismiss it. He told me once that if I really wanted to pursue New Testament criticism, I had to learn Sanskrit. Well, it's a little too late to teach this old dog's this old dog new tricks, but I'm always fascinated by what Dr. Lintner has to say. Yeah, well, what the heck, let's Polish one uh, more off. Saif Assad al Satya from Chicago. He says, But my heart, as always, is in the Terai. Uh, he says, uh, uh, Regarding apocryphal gospels and other New Testament era books that didn't make it into the canon, is it reasonable to assume that we have better access to books that date from the later eras of early Christianity, say, 3rd through 6th centuries? than those from earlier dates. It seems to me that a large number of the heretical texts that are available now come from the Nag Hammadi Library, which tends to reflect the interests of 4th century monks in central Egypt, which could be very different from, say, the interests of a Jewish Christian in Palestine 300 years earlier. The climate of Egypt is evidently very conducive to preserving documents for the long term. Do you have a guess off the top of your head as to what percentage of rediscovered early manuscripts are from Nag Hammadi versus all other finds combined? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I'd say that the trove of goodies from Nag Hammadi is at least comparable to that of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, there are several other similar Coptic texts found by themselves or in smaller groups uh, in Egypt, and however, with the dates, th- that is very tricky because people still tend to date the the New Testament canon books as early as they can. I think for theological apologetics reasons, and these things have now become entrenched so that even critical scholars take them for granted. Um, I remember hearing uh, the great James M. Robinson, a disciple of Bultmann, a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He was on TV when they were hyping this um, Gospel of Judas a few years ago. I'm still not so sure that's not a modern fake, as Richard Arthur argued. But um, Robinson said, well, here what you have is a second century fiction about about Jesus and the others. And I remember thinking, uh, you mean like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I'm not so sure there's a huge difference. But um, most scholars think that the Nag Hammadi texts 
come from some time in the second century because the fourth century date applies only to the manuscripts, right? The copies that they had uh, in uh, in the monastery there, uh, the, the monastery of Saint Pacomius in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. Uh, we we can surmise that partly because well, this is really enough to to tell the tale. There are three copies of the Apocryphon of John, the secret book of John, and uh, some longer, some shorter editions. But um, Irenaeus, in about 180 CE or AD, he describes in great detail the teaching of this book, and he got it right. Uh, From all we can tell, uh, they used to wonder if Irenaeus was caricaturing the Gnostics' teaching and making it look ridiculous, because he does just say it is ridiculous. Uh, but it turns out, no, he was scrupulously accurate uh, in every place we can tell. I guess he figured, you know, it's one of these things where to explain it is to refute it. Well, okay, they were already around when he was writing in the second century. And the Gospel of Thomas, well, we already had earlier versions of some of the sayings in that. Uh, I mean, like fragments of a document. And now it turns out it must have been the Greek original of the Gospel of Thomas, or at least, you know, a, a copy from the original Greek. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the Nag Hammadi texts are not that late. Uh, they're They're just a little older, if I mean younger, than the New Testament documents. And I don't even think much, uh, there's much difference in the dates. Um, he goes on to say, uh, there's also a third category of texts, including, for instance, the Ascension of Isaiah, that are not canonical, but were preserved by copyists into more recent times, rather than being utterly forgotten for a thousand plus years. Yeah, uh, all of the pseudepigrapha, these books, and there are loads of them, right? Look at uh, uh, Charlesworth's uh, two huge volumes, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Uh, Who preserved those? Uh, It wasn't sectarian Jews who originally wrote them and used them. Uh, Under the... um, regime of the uh, formative Judaism, these books were repudiated, but early Christians loved them and copied them and read them, and for all we know, uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jews, if they were, right, Eisenman and others say maybe they were the Jerusalem church, and I take that seriously. At any rate, uh, these guys who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls have copies of a bunch of these works, Enoch, Jubilees, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and all that. So they were considered scripture, but like our first questioner said, uh, they, they got knocked out of consideration in many quarters, but some kept them going, and Christians... Uh, made the copies we have now, unfortunately interpolating them here and there, but I don't think all that seriously. Uh, And uh, so that uh, they were probably in somebody's canon, but even when they weren't, uh, they were still considered interesting enough that they were passed down, and we have loads of of copies of these things in different languages. Uh, Just look at the footnotes in the uh, RSV of 4th Ezra, for instance, in Apocalypse, where you've got the Latin says this, the Georgian says that, the Slavonic says this. (laughs) They were very, very widely read. 
uh, let's see. Uh, and by the way, Christians were the ones who preserved Josephus because of the light shed on the Bible. Uh, Jews were not too uh, interested because they regarded Josephus as a stinking traitor. Okay, uh, then finally, um, an additional factor with regard to extremely early Christian texts might be that Christianity simply wasn't very popular yet, so some of the earliest texts might have never existed in more than a handful of copies. In any of uh, true, uh, you know, that brings up one of these criteria that uh, were, uh, you know, were they really operative or was it later rationalization? I don't know. But we're told that uh, a book had to meet the criterion of Catholicity. That is, it had to be known and used all over the church. Uh, because if it wasn't, then you, you would have to wonder why. If this thing really came from the early apostolic period, why didn't it spread all over the place? And there were a few books that wound up in the canon that nearly didn't, like Second and Third John and Jude, because uh, I mean they're very short, right? Uh, n none of these has more than a single chapter, and um, and uh, so it's pretty easy to see how they'd get lost in the shuffle. But they have connections to, like First John, which was more widely known. It's real easy to see how these other ones could have been not quoted, not preserved, but they had such an obvious link to things like First John or Jude with Second Peter, though that was a bit iffy. They figured, well, uh, these are rightly clinging to the coattails of the canon. Let's let's admit them. Uh, so that uh, you're right. I mean, there must have been others that uh, just never had any real circulation, and uh, like were there epistles of Paul that uh, we don't have because uh, nobody does. Uh, let's see, uh, in any event, the vagaries of which ancient manuscripts were preserved and which weren't could lead to large blind spots in our understanding of how the canon developed. I recently heard a Christian writer with apologetic tendencies comment with satisfaction that biblical scholars have dated most of the apocryphal gospels much later than the canonicals. But I thought perhaps that just means that the Nag Hammadi library contains a lot of relatively late works. Am I on the right track here? Uh, actually, uh, I, I think you're giving them too much credit because, as I say, the Nag Hammadi texts are not much later, if at all, than uh, the uh, canonical books. In fact, there's a lot of scholars who think that the Gospel of Thomas is earlier than the others. I don't happen to think so, but I recognize that as a viable theory, and, you know, it's very difficult to decide these, but what you can say sometimes is that some of these works are inferior in a literary sense, and boy, are they. Right. Uh, it, good luck staying awake as you try to read the various Gnostic apocalypses. Holy mackerel, uh, Excedrin headache number 13. Right. Uh, or some of the uh, apocryphal infancy gospels. They, they just appear ridiculous, uh, but they're not really badly written. And, and it's that's not a criterion for early or late.
<laughs> right? You could say that Luke reads a whole lot better than the infancy gospel of Matthew because it's a later work that's more polished. I mean, who knows? There's just uh, no way to be sure of these things. Uh, so I, the fact that uh, scholars think this, even most if they do, really doesn't mean a thing. You've got to examine the uh, the evidence that they they've on which they base these these uh, theories yeah so um, um, yeah uh, one other thing about this William Vreda who wrote the great book The Messianic Secret he did a terrific essay I believe uh, The Nature of New Testament Theology where he points out that yeah um, we we are not sure we have a representative sampling of what early Christianity was about. And he says, let's suppose a, you know, a thousand years from now, somebody was trying to reconstruct the teaching of the Christian socialist, or let's just say socialist movement. And um, I don't know, there'd been wars and stuff, and uh, all that survived was, let's say, a biography of... Uh, of uh, Friedrich Engels and one treatise of Karl Marx and a few anonymous pamphlets by uh, circulated by a socialist party and a couple of things like this, would we really have an adequate basis for reconstructing it? Well, that's the same... Uh, I mean, we'd know something, but uh, that's not really enough for a well-rounded, comprehensive understanding of it. Well, the same is true of the New Testament. We have almost a random set of texts. Well, it turns out I think it's a little less random than that, but his point is still a good one. Some of the ones we don't have, we don't have because somebody suppressed them because they figured they were heretical. And uh, I go with William O. Walker, Jr., uh, who said that, yeah, there, it looks like there was a... a uh, a censoring uh, standardization of the text and uh, so uh, yeah it's it's on the one hand it's kind of haphazard who knows what we lost and why and on the other it's suspiciously uh, uh, axe grinding so do we have a uh, an adequate representation you have to do what Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza says in one of her many fascinating books um, in memory of her reconstruction of a feminist reconstruction of Christian origins and, and other books since then, where she says you can tell from early church decrees and manuals and all that that there was a systematic progressive suppression of women in the church. And once you know that, you can look back and begin to read the silences in the canon. Uh, that uh, you, you can see something is a little odd here. It looks like we're reading a censored thing. In fact, on that particular subject, I recommend my favorite of my books, The Widow Traditions in Luke Acts, A Feminist Critical Scrutiny, where I say that I think Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza's methods enable us to do a lot more than she herself did with these texts. Uh, and um, so we have to learn to try to figure out. We have to to uh, to um, make inferences about the fire when we see some smoke, 
when there are oddities and anomalies that just don't fit into emergent Christianity. Uh, And there are plenty of them in the New Testament, like in Colossians 1, where Paul, or somebody claiming to be Paul, says, now don't you worry about my sufferings, because in them I'm simply uh, finishing up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What on earth does he mean? You know, what is going on? This certainly does not presuppose what emerged as the standard doctrine of the atonement. And there are a bunch of things like that. These adoptionist passages, um, God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The apologetic approach is to say, well, there's smoke, but there was no fire. Uh, we, uh, we can just ignore this stuff. Uh, no, we can't. Uh, they what they like to do is to take what ought to be a verdict of agnosticism and turn it into theism. Maybe we'll never know quite what was going on there, but that doesn't entitle us to assume that eh, nothing went on. Uh, let's just stick with a party line. Oh no, 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 you can't do that. Okay, well that's enough uh, fulminating. Uh, for me for today. Uh, Sure has been fun, and I'll see you pretty soon, I hope, uh, with another exciting installment of The Bible Geek. And, oh yeah, I should just tell you, as humiliating as it is, that uh, as too often around here, I'm hoping Patreon will help with this, we are in uh, pretty serious red ink. And you know why that is, right? And, uh, And if you can help us, as many of you have. Once again, I would be very, uh, very appreciative for that. But I'll see you soon on The Bible Geek, one way or the other. Bye-bye. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovitch. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.